Hey everybody out there, this is Kevin Ford, host of the Share Prosperity Podcast. Um, coming to you today from lovely Kalamazoo, Michigan, PMN Studios. My lovely co-host, magnificent Melody Dakin. Um, this podcast is about exploring issues that block, unlock people's opportunity to thrive, prosper, and exit poverty. I'm going to jump right into it today because we got two awesome guests. This is the first two, having two guests at the same time. We got two awesome guests talking about one of the most relevant and, and hot issues right now, especially in light of COVID and everything that's happening across the nation. So we'll just jump right into it. Our guest today, Tim Bartik, senior economist from W.E. Upjohn Institute, and Kristen Buell Lepisto, executive director for Kalamazoo County Ready Fours, right? So we're just going to hop right into it. We'll let them um, talk about themselves a little bit. But we want to really get into the depth of um, this child care issue and how it is affecting uh, working families in our community. And so first thing we do as students of systems thinking and, and advocates of systems thinking, we want to learn a little bit more about um, you all. We know folks don't operate in vacuums. Like, how did you all come to this work? Um, what influences in your, in your lives um, drew you to this work? Well, uh, I guess I grew up in the Philadelphia area, uh, although I've been in Kalamazoo since 1989. And uh, Philadelphia is a wonderful city, but it has a lot of problems. So from a pretty early age, I was always interested in how do you make cities more prosperous? And at some point, I became convinced that the key was getting more people into jobs and getting more people into good jobs. So I've worked most of my career on economic development policies, actually, on how do you create jobs in a local labor market and get them to people. But at some point, I came to early childhood programs as also being a way to get people into good jobs and to increase earnings per capita. Not the only way. I mean, I, know, you know, I think we need to get away from the single solutions to a complicated problem doesn't work that way. Right. But a key component of getting people into good jobs is making sure that they have the skills to get them and keep them. And early childhood programs can help you do that. And I'll go into more later on why I think that's the case, what the research shows. All right. And Kristen, how did you come to this work? Well, I think like a lot of folks in education, I'm inspired by impact. And it all started for me. I was a student at K College and spent four years mentoring students at Woodward Elementary and absolutely loved that experience. And it helped shape me um, to decide to pursue education as a career. In my master's program, I had the opportunity to teach preschool in one of the best schools in Chicago. And I saw the impact and the incredible transformations that were happening during that amazing window of time for young children at this amazing school. And I wanted to bring that to all children and really have dedicated most of my career to bringing high quality early childhood education to all kids. All right. Sounds noble. 
interesting. Um, I thank you all both for the work you're doing in the community. So to jump right in, I got a question that's been on my mind and has been asked by some other folks uh, around this. Why is child care so darn expensive? Uh, I think the economics of it are pretty straightforward, which if you're going to have high quality, you need to have a certain uh, maximum ratio of kids to staff or a certain minimum ratio of staff to kids, depending on how to look at it. So you need to have a lot of staff per kid, especially when you get to infant care. But even if you get to age three and four, you can't just have huge class sizes. It's not going to work. You also have to, if you really want high quality, you need to have low teacher turnover, good teacher recruitment, and you need to uh, pay salaries that are high enough that you can actually get and keep teachers. So it's going to be expensive. And uh, that creates a real dilemma because, of course, a lot of the people you want to help through having high-quality child care and high-quality preschool uh, simply do not have the money to pay what quality cost. And the only way to bridge that gap is some kind of public provision or public subsidy um, along with some public support uh, for quality. And that's what the organization that Kristen heads uh, is doing, trying to provide in part to make up for some of the gaps in our current governmental system in supporting quality and making sure all kids have access. Yeah, I've seen in like Canada, um, I think daycare is like 10 bucks a day, 11 bucks a day. How, how would that look like here? Well, I mean, you could, you know, I mean, okay, if you want to talk about really long-term goals, uh, I mean, uh, some of the Scan uh, Scandinavian countries, uh, like I, uh, a friend of my son's was spent a few years in Oslo working, he had a job there, and over in Norway they have uh, what they call Barneshagen, which literally translated means kindergarten. I mean, it has, it's the same root words, kids' mm -hmm. garden. Yeah. But it starts at age one. And before age one, they have parental leave. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's paid parental leave for the first year for either the mom or dad to take or some combination thereof. After that, you put your kid in a Barneshagen, and it's a sliding fee scale. Parents pay something. The state subsidizes everyone to some extent because it's so expensive. Even middle-class households have trouble affording infant care. And uh, but you know if you're low income, it's pretty much close to 100% paid for. You might pay something, but not very much. And that goes up to kids enter regular school, and it's all reasonably high quality. The Americans who live in Norway apparently annoy the Norwegians by saying, "Which is the good Barneshagen I should put my kid in?" You know, my kid's future is <laughs> going to be dependent on being in the right one. All right. And the Norwegians look at them like. Are you crazy? Yeah. They're all good. Just put them in the one that's nearest where you work or nearest your home, whatever's more convenient for you. You know, that don't worry about it. Right. It's fine. So the government subsidizes not only the, the slots, but the staff. Oh, yeah. Well. yeah. And then they support it. So it's high quality. And now that's, you know, of course, it, it's not cheap. No. I mean, people should recognize that doing that is expensive. Uh, you know, but the question is, are there economic returns? And that's what the research suggests is that you have... I mean, the reason you want to do this, I mean, a lot of reasons you want to do it. It's, it's, you, you can, it's not, but the, the point of view from an economist, I'm an economist, so, mm -hmm. okay, so I'm supposed to be, you know, cold-hearted, just look at the dollars, whatever. You yeah. know, and that in part is useful because it's not, this is not just a feel-good policy. 
This is also a policy that increases earnings in society in three ways. One, the kids who go through the programs, when they grow up, are going to have higher skills. Why? Because they start kindergarten with higher skills, both kind of hard skills like academic, but also soft skills like how they behave, how they think of themselves, how they interact with the teacher, how they interact with the other kids. And that, therefore, they do better in kindergarten, therefore, they do better in first grade. It's kind of a cumulative process that right. happens. Snowball. Effect. So they do much better. They, they're more likely, in fact, research has shown that if you go through high-quality preschool, you're much more likely to go to college, even if your test scores aren't any higher when you're in high school. And then the other thing it does is it helps parents. It helps parents either work or go back to school. Uh, obviously, they go back to work and increases their earnings, but even if it also increases long-run earnings because the parents can maybe go back to school and plus working builds earnings. And the third thing it does builds earnings for society because you have to realize there are huge spillovers in the labor market that people always ask. I mean, well, some people ask, okay, why should I pay for other people's kids to go to preschool? Right. If I can afford to send my kid to a high-quality preschool on my own because I have enough money. Why should, why should I care except for, kind of, well, there are ethical reasons you might want to care, but, but from a hard-headed standpoint of what's in it for me, why should I care? Well, the reason is is that production in our complex society is a team effort. If, if you have a company and only some of the workers can use new technology, yeah. that company's not going to be able to as quickly introduce new technology. So that company is going to be less competitive because some of the workers don't have the skills. So it's been shown that your wages depend in part on the skill level of the workers at your company or in your community. So all of us in the Kalamazoo community should be caring about what are the skills of people growing up, not only in Winchill or Millwood or Bonson Boulevard, but what are the skills of kids growing up on the north side or Edison or the east side or whatever. Because we're all in this, it, it, we're all in this together. It's not a um, uh, the economy is a team sport, not an individual sport. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of like a bee colony or beehive. Or we all have our well, yeah. humans are social creatures, and the yeah. economy yeah. is a social yeah. institution. It's not a uh, it's something we've created where where we you know we don't live in a Robinson Crusoe world. We all make our own stuff. We're all dependent on these intricate interrelationships where we do production in teams and then we trade stuff with other people who are in teams. And so the overall productivity of the system depends on everyone's skills. Right. And, you know, that's why it's, it's wrong even in the international context. I mean, it's good for the United States in the long term that China and India and other countries develop more skills and whatever. I mean, in the end, that's going to be good for the entire world. I mean, in the short term, maybe there's some trade-offs, but in the long term, Everyone's better off if we can develop the productivity of everyone in the world. Yeah, yeah. Male said it reminded of a beehive. Reminds me of marriage. I'm thinking of, yo, <laughs> both have to be at the top of our game. I yep. can't be the only one taking out trash or washing dishes, as an example. But, yeah, it's definitely, uh, we are social creatures. It's definitely a team sport. Um, so thanks for that. In terms of, like, what you do, Kristen, and like how, how what Tim just said affects what you do in families. Mm -hmm. Well, I think also what Tim, getting back to your original question of why is it so expensive, he said why it costs so much to run, but mm -hmm. there's also the problem of 
these are young families, right, typically at the start of their careers, and they're asked then to pay the equivalent of, you know, college tuition for their children starting at zero to five. When they're early in their careers, they're not making as much money. Some have student debt, amongst a host of other reasons, right? So it's an incredibly big burden for families to pay for high-quality child care. Um, Kalamazoo County Ready Fours does three main things. One is supports those families um, who need assistance for that tuition support. So income-eligible families, and we help to... Um, lower that burden of, of the cost of high-quality pre-K. Um, two, we provide tremendous supports to the preschools themselves so that they can be high-quality. Um, if you think of all the supports that K-12 receive, we're bringing a lot of those down to the three- and four-year-old classrooms. So mm -hmm. things like teacher mentors to work alongside the educators. Um, we have speech-language pathologists on staff that can help screen and support students with speech-language delays. That's the number one reason kids are going into kindergarten with an IEP. So if we can start that earlier. What's an IEP? Uh, individualized Education Plan. Special ed. Right. Designated part of a special ed thing. Um, we have a clinical behaviorist who can help navigate some behavior challenges. We just brought on board an occupational therapist to help with sensory needs, um, all sorts of supports, curriculum, professional development, um, and that's all at no cost to the preschools themselves. And then third, we support the family because these kiddos are a part of a family first, and we need to often support the families that we are working with um, in connecting them with other resources in the community um, or just helping them understand the importance of the parent as the first educator. Right. And that's important to highlight, especially, you know, um, a, a two generation lens. Uh, I've given this presentation and it's a slide. Um, and the quote is from, from uh, a child psychologist, uh, deceased now, but the quote is children don't grow up in programs. They grow up in families and communities. And so you can have a stellar program, but if, you know, the families aren't taken care of, if the communities are distressed, you know, some of those gains will be negated. So it, it behooves us, uh, like Tim was saying, you know, to look at it comprehensively and in a team, through a team lens, you know. Like you said, it may be somebody without kids questioning, well, why should I put in something? I don't even have kids. Why should I care? Right. So, yeah, complex. Um but not, not overwhelming, I don't mm -hmm. think. I don't think. And early childhood is one of the best leverage points here because to some extent, even on its own, it is a two-generation program. Because if you look at it, on the one hand, it's, it's by subsidizing the child care and preschool, you're, you're saving the family some money to the extent they which they would have paid for it themselves, so they're in a little better standard of living. Second, uh, the parent is more able to work, so that's going to increase their standard of living. So... You're working on the family, and hopefully they're less likely to get evicted from their housing, and they're, they're they, you know, they're going to be in a better, well, a better state of mind, which is right. good. And then on the other hand, you're developing the kids' skills and getting them off to a better start, and hopefully long term that's going to pay off. So it is a two generation program. Now, of course, you also need other programs to bring in jobs and yep. job training and everything else. So it's not a solution by itself, but it 
but it does by itself function as a two generation program. Yeah, yeah, and he, and it's is a like you said, it's a good leverage point, um, and good return on investment. Again, not to uh, be crass or just like cold with the numbers, but yeah, it's a it's a good return on investment. Um, I don't know the numbers in terms of like every dollar invested, you get this much back uh, to community, but it's high. You can get numbers easily in some of the programs, uh, 10 to one, you know, it depends. So you can mm -hmm. get, it depends what you want to count. I mean, if you're, are you discounting earnings benefits? Do you include the benefits from reducing crime and substance abuse and that kind of thing? And in some very serious analyses, actually, in the long term, they might be self-financing from the point of view of the government. That is, uh, I mean, one of the troubles with getting the public to invest in this is it definitely is a long-term payoff. There's some yeah. short-term payoff in terms of the parents, but obviously we're not putting kids in preschool at age three and four and then sending the labor force at age six, at least I hope not. Uh, so, you know, you're talking about the main return that's going to actually going to occur when the kids are in their prime earnings years in their 30s, 40s, and yeah. 50s. So it's a 30-year, 40-year program. You're planting trees here. You're not, uh, mm -hmm. you, you can't harvest right away. <laughs> I mean, right. uh, uh, so it's a long-term investment. So you're requiring society to really take a long-term perspective. And that is sometimes hard for people to do. Uh, politically. We've done it before in this country with K-12 education, which to fund K-12 education, you have to take a long-term view too. We, in this country, we've been a leader in that. You need to have the same kind of long-term perspective to invest in early childhood education. Mm -hmm. I had some, I had a question about just Casey Ready for in general. Does that mean, can you describe what that is? Like, does that mean you have to be four years old to attend or participate in it? Three, we fund three-year-olds as well. Three, three or four. Okay. Yep. Got it. And it's just daycares in the city, in the county, that you um, give funding to to subsidize their care. Yeah, high-quality preschools, mm -hmm. and um, we are countywide. Okay. And we work alongside KRISA, who... The Intermediate um, School District. Yeah, the Intermediate School District, thank you, um, who operates the Head Start and... Great Start to Readiness or the state-funded preschool programs mm -hmm. um, so that we have an integrated funding system to maximize dollars on the back end mm -hmm. for families. So families can apply to Kalamazoo County Pre-K. It's one application. And then we do all the work on the back end to figure out what is the funding stream to support you? What do you qualify for? Okay. And the funding follows the family. So they decide the preschool that they want their child to attend, what's best for them, where is it going to meet their needs, um, and we help support them in that. Great, okay. And we partner with about 55 preschools in the county. Okay. Yeah. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old, so I'm just thinking. Yep, yep. <laughs> we should talk. <laughs> this is another question I had in terms of child care. So with the pandemic happening, there's been a lot unearthed around the importance of child care and how it connects to employment, employment opportunities or retention. And I'm interested to know what employers can do to contribute to this issue of, of child care, early child care, um, helping workers in that way. Well, one thing they can do is directly provide child care in preschool which some companies do. I mean, you would tend to have to be a company that uh, has a sufficient size 
that it can offer a, a child care preschool experience. I mean, CalSec is a company that does that and is, uh, has a very good uh, child care center and preschool for its employees that, uh, that, that they see partly as an obligation in the community and their employees, but also partly it's just in their own self-interest in terms of attracting and retaining employees. I mean, they, I mean the, the, uh, the guy who's CEO of CalSec will tell you that they get contacted by people from out of state who want to know how they can get hired by CalSec because uh, they're interested in this childcare and preschool thing. Um, for smaller companies, they can help um, subsidize childcare and preschool to some extent. Uh, the state right now is probably, I don't, Kalamazoo County doesn't have a version of it, but they have a, a tri-share program they're trying out that maybe they'll extend statewide at some point where the, the model is that the employer pays one third, the parent pays one third, and then the um, the state will pay one third of the cost of, of childcare and preschool, uh, and that's a that's a model that I think is worth exploring. Uh, you know, so but you know, even without that program, an employer if it wanted to could make as a benefit of, of the you know a fringe benefit of some kind of subsidy uh, for childcare, and they could reach arrangement. There there are plenty <laughs> there are plenty of childcare preschool places out there that if an employer said to them, "Do you want to be part of a network?" where we would help subsidize employees to go to your child care or preschool centers. I think there are plenty of centers that would be interested in that kind of deal. I think Kristen maybe could comment on that, what she thinks the employers can do. Yeah, I mean, I think all those things. I think the, the silver lining of COVID in some ways was that it really brought forward the importance of this issue. It's not just an issue for folks with young kids. It's an issue for everybody in the community, including employers, including your neighbors, including your colleagues, all of us. If you want to have productive and responsible and happy uh, workforce, you have to care about this. So I think um, continuing to advocate, continuing to be creative about how they can support younger families and um, their future workforce and their current workforce, um, that, that has been one of the silver linings for me is seeing seeing the interest from the corporate sector all of a sudden. And does this apply um, equally to nonprofit sector as well in terms of how they can support? Sure, Not, nonprofit agencies certainly can offer, you know, if they're large enough, can, can run their own child care and preschool. And if they're smaller, they can uh, uh, provide a fringe benefit of this. Again, I think to really make this work, again, I think there are social benefits and spillovers to this that mean that ideally there would be some larger public subsidy for this, I mean, which is what the TriShare program is trying to do. In other words, I, I, I do think it's in the self-interest to some degree of employers to do this, but isn't this, is it enough in their self-interest for enough employees that, it's, that, that enough employers will do this on their own without some public subsidy? I think some public subsidy is required because there are huge – Again, there are huge spillover benefits of high-quality childcare and preschool in the community because then the entire economy becomes more productive and you can get a higher wage. Even if you don't, you know, like as you were saying earlier, even if you don't have kids, you benefit from having a community that has higher skills. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. And... I know Mel has some questions in terms of economic development specifically. Yeah. And child um, care. 
Yeah, I think just kind of going back to the basics, I think it's good to get a, um, I just would love to learn more about what you do in your role. Uh, What is like, what is equitable economic development look like for you? Well, it's really broad. Well, equitable economic development would include that. I mean, sometimes people talk about economic development just in terms of creating jobs. And obviously, you have to create jobs for people to have jobs, but you also need to make sure that everyone can access those jobs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's partly a matter of transportation, but it's also partly a matter of whether you have information about the jobs, whether you have the networks. I mean, there's still many jobs and many employers who hire through personal networks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, their employees recommend other folks. Well, if you don't happen to know anyone who works there, it doesn't work out so well for you. Um, so we need to, uh, you know, increase those networks of people getting into good jobs. So that's what equitable economic development means. And it also means extending, making sure that everyone has skills. So that's where early childhood and child care comes in. I mean, in part, and also the support. I mean, for example, one thing, you can't access a job unless you can afford and you have child care in your community. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's there both there physically and it's affordable in terms of money and also that you know about it, that <laughs> you know where it is and you know what high quality is and how to recognize it. So, you know, ideally we would have a situation where if we're trying to help people, you know, move out of poverty, that someone could come into a neighborhood center of some sort and in addition to linking them up with job opportunities and figuring out what training they might need and maybe figuring out some way to either get them, you know, find a bus route that works or, or get them a reliable used car that's affordable or whatever they need, you also made sure, okay, you got kids? Here's a child care center. Here's a preschool that you can enroll your kid in. And here's what it's going to cost, and it makes sense in terms of taking the job because it's affordable in terms of that job. So to me, equitable economic development includes having all the supports needed that people can get and keep jobs. You know, and this why I'm, more, I'm a researcher of the Upton Institute, but the Upton Institute, as you may know, also has an operations division that runs job training programs in uh, the four-county area around Kalamazoo, and so they – do a lot of this. They they run these neighborhood hubs in uh, Bell Creek, and I think they now have at least one of them in the north side of Kalamazoo that they're trying to do in a, a, a neighborhood hub. And the idea is you provide this neighborhood hub of services. And I think that's a very useful model that we, we really need to think about how do we connect people in the neighborhoods that have the lowest employment rates and the highest poverty rates with the jobs that exist throughout the local labor market. How do we connect that up? In other words, we, we have to do more in economic development than create the jobs. We need to link people to the jobs, and that requires institutions that do the linkages and provide the supports that include child care and preschool. Mm-hmm. We've talked a, lot, a, little, a little bit about that. Um, I had a conversation with former Mayor Bobby Hopewell a few weeks ago, and he kind of mentioned like the – on the streets team, like neighborhood business team, where we're like on this, we go to the people in the neighborhoods. They don't come to us, which I kind of like like that model. I think, I think we're moving towards that. Um, we still have, still have a lot of work to do in that area, but um, 
Well, I think COVID is much real because, you know, in the mm -hmm. debate over how to get the vaccine out to people. Okay, right. so the vaccine is available right now in, in the sense of technically it's available. As far as I know, there's no shortage of vaccine supplies. But is it actually, and of course, there are, again, some people aren't getting vaccinated because of some ideological thing, whatever. Um, but then there are other people, it may be technically available, but they don't really know where it is exactly, or maybe their work hours are weird, or and, and, and they don't know how to work around their work hours and get the vaccine, and, and, and so it may be technically available, but they don't really quite know how to access it. So there are a lot of people you could maybe, so I think we found out during this COVID thing that if we really want to facilitate people getting vaccinated, we need to kind of reach out into the neighborhoods and find people. You can't just wait around and say, oh, well, it's available. Yeah, you no should, you should find it. Yeah. 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 You, so and the same is true with jobs. We need to think about, okay, yeah, so there are jobs that, you know, right now we have a high labor demand economy and, uh, you know, we'll see how long that persists. But, and employers are looking for workers, but doesn't necessarily mean that everyone in the neighborhood knows how to access their job opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, kind of speaking on that, what do you see as uh, the unique strengths that we have in our community? just like compared to other cities that you've looked at? Well, I think Kalamazoo has both uh, social capital and financial capital and a, a, a scale that's easier to deal with. Mm -hmm. So Kalamazoo, I tell people who want to know what it's like, is it has all the both assets and um, problems of say Philadelphia or Chicago or whatever, maybe not the same degree. You can argue about that, but it's we know that the Kalamazoo, you know, it's got it's got urban strengths and urban problems. Mm -hmm. You know, crime, whatever, poverty. It's uh, you got a whole bunch of stuff, and but we do have, I think, a high degree of social capital. We have a lot of institutions, whether it's the Cunley Foundation, it's. Uh, KC Ready Fours. It's a whole network of, um, of philanthropic institutions uh, that exist. It's got financial capital. It's got some very benevolent groups with and individuals with money who seem interested in the community. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's got a scale where people. Okay, you just said you just talked to Bobby Hopewell, the former mayor. Well, so I know Bobby Hopewell. You know, okay, so and I, you know, I know people in the school board. I was in the school board. I mean, you know, people. Yeah, Kristen knows people. You know the business school at Western, you know, and people know people at the W Med and people know people at, uh, you know, there's, it's enough of a scale. Whereas like in New York city, if you're trying to coordinate everything, you know, I can't imagine it, or Chicago trying to coordinate all mm -hmm. these different political forces. Kalamazoo, if should we, we, it's at a scale where we can address our problems, where where Kristen can make a dent at trying to make preschool into a system that works for everyone, whereas it's manageable. It's not it's easy. I'm not implying it's easy, but trying to do that on a place the scale of Chicago is a yeah. lot harder. Right. This is such a town when we I mean, I always joke like we know everybody by first name. We're right. Like, well, Chris, what Chris? You're like, oh, I know that Chris from the co-op, you know. Oh, yeah, you run, so. I run Bobby on his bike somewhere or something. You yeah, know? I mean, yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, there's stuff like that. But 
So I, I think there is that connection. I mean, I'm sure that happens too, that, that probably uh, Kristen in dealing with some preschool issues might run into someone at the grocery store or, or, or whatever, mm -hmm. or, or going on a hike somewhere, and you run into someone and start talking about how to solve some problem or whatever. And it's just a scale where it's a little easier. I think it's easy, a little easier to deal with things. Mm -hmm. uh, to that point, I got to I gotta throw this out there and get it off my chest. And this is to both of you all. To that point, considering the challenges that we've had in our community for a number of years and you all in you all's opinions and what what you've seen and experienced why haven't we wrapped our arms around some of these challenges then what's what's one of the barriers you all would think to us getting there well that's a good question i think i think sometimes we've uh just done a lot of different things and haven't pulled it all together. I mean, I think we have a lot of activity going on in the community. Sometimes it, um, even at our scale, it's sometimes a little siloed, you know, by which I mean that there are different operations doing their things in different ways uh, that people aren't necessarily aware of. Right. So and, even, so even at the organizational level and the, the, um, the systems level, we're not connected and linked. Like right. you, you talked about like residents being connected and linked to job opportunities and other opportunities. But even at that systems level, it's like a gap in terms of linkages and connections sometimes. Right. I think we're better able to do it, but I don't think we necessarily do it at the scale that's really required. And it's hard. I think it's hard to connect all the services and figure out how do you, uh, you know, the preschool has to connect up with the the child care and the child care needs to connect up with what the hospitals do in prenatal care. And then we, we have to, uh, we got mental health systems going on and financing. Yeah, there's, there's a, <laughs> yeah. I, I do think too, though, getting back to your question, um, you know, part of the exciting time to be in Kalamazoo and at an organization like KC Ready Fours is that we are ripe for some incredible things to happen in the early ed world. Because um, if we learned anything from folks like Jeffrey Canada and the Harlem Children's Zone and other communities, it's that you don't start later and go back. We should start early and go forward. And this town has done a wonderful job, you know, very focused. It's a great university town. The Kalamazoo Promise and K-12 is an incredible gift but we are ripe for something equally amazing to happen in the zero to five realm. And um, that, when you, when you look at all Tim's research and all the other research out there, um, will make an, a huge impact on a variety of things. Right, and one of the things about early childhood that it really makes attractive invest there is I think the evidence in early childhood is that essentially almost every kid ben can easily benefit from simply devoting more resources to high quality early childhood programs. Now, I think there can be a high rate of return to later programs, like we meant, like the Kalamazoo Promise, uh, there's a high rate of return to that. But when we looked at the Kalamazoo Promise at the Upton Institute, the estimates we had, and these are a few years old, so it may have changed since then, was that it increased the uh, graduation rate from either a four-year college or a two-year college from 36% before the promise to 
So that's after six years after high school graduation. So that's good. We've, we've increased it by a third, mm-hmm. 36, 48. There's 12% more people getting this credential, two-year or four-year. On the other hand, you know, glass is half full. <laughs> 52% of the kids, even with a free ride to college, did not get any credential. Yeah. So the reality is that if you don't invest in early childhood, you can still invest later on. But there are some people that, that it's going to be more and more difficult to turn them around because they've kind of gone off on the wrong path for a long time. Not that you can't. I'm not saying you shouldn't invest in someone. Obviously, there are people who have drug problems for many years, and later on you bring them back. But it's, it's going to be a lot harder right. if you don't do that early investment. The early investment is something that enables you, when it kind of broadens possibilities, whereas the later investments have to be much more targeted. You have to yeah. start talking about triage strategies, who, who, you know, who a, do we who It's do a we heavier adapt? lift. Yeah, it's a heavier, it's lift, a heavier lift, and it's a little more difficult. Not, not that it can't be a very high return, but it needs to be much more targeted. Not everyone... You know, not everyone's suitable for job training programs. If someone has a serious substance abuse problem, maybe you need to address that before you put them into a job training program. Right, right. And it still comes back to a lot of things that have been lifted up already. The the connections, the linkages, um, the recognition of the web of interdependencies, right? So like you said, jobs, great, child care, great, but it's other things going on in people's lives. And depending on where they're at, there may be a different um, solution needed to address that problem. And it's still a community thing. It's still a community thing that's needed. Um, so, yeah, interesting. But as Chris can tell you, I mean, almost all kids, need, there are a lot of, although there are different needs and you need to address them, all, almost all kids benefit from a high-quality preschool that, you know, uh, that not only builds things like people think about, like letters and numbers, but also builds kids' social skills. I mean, that's what, I mean, a lot of the teacher mentors that Casey Ready for is funds. I mean, they're, they're, they're not just working. I, I think sometimes people think of this wrong, like we're, we're, we're taking kids and we're hurrying them up too much and we're going to be drilling them with flashcards in preschool. But that's not what the, the teacher mentors that Casey Ready for is employees and work with teachers are, are pushing. They're pushing a much more holistic type program, right, Chris? That's what right. they're... Can, can the children solve a problem? You know, can they interact with their peers? Can they name and share their feelings, right? Things, those social skills, which are the foundation for everything else in life as well. Mm-hmm. So heavy, like social, 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 emotional learning Correct. type stuff. Can they take a turn? Can they follow a multi-step direction? Those things really matter at that age. And, th- and that's one of the things the research shows on preschool is that the high-quality preschool programs, they do have significant effects on test scores on math and reading at kindergarten entrance. But then the test score effects tend to fade. And if you just looked at test scores, if you thought that the only thing that mattered in life was, you know, what uh, score you got on a sixth-grade math test, uh, you might be disappointed and say, well, gee, a lot, you know, 90% of the effects faded by sixth grade, so it must be the program doesn't work. Well, what we find, though, is that those kids, because of the better social-emotional skills, the greater self-confidence, greater ability to deal with peers, they're more likely to uh, finish high school, more likely to go on to college. And, and we know that a lot of whether or not you finish high school and go into college is not your, your academic skills. It's whether you're – can you stick to things? Right. So the can resiliency. Resiliency and able to – 
to deal with challenges that come up, you know, and you know, the old, I, I don't remember who wrote the book, everything I know I learned in kindergarten, but really it's actually what we discovered. It's actually better. It, you can learn it in kindergarten to some degree, but you can learn it in preschool and that's actually a better age to start at. Yeah. Sticking to it. So baking in resiliency, um, coping strategies, things that definitely help you as an adult, definitely you need as an adult, but just baking those in as early as possible. Yeah. I had a question I want to ask you about um, your experience at Woodward and then your kind of uh, other spectrum experience at the preschool. Can you maybe share like a couple anecdotes that kind of stick out in your mind that keeps you doing this work? They're like, I remember this. This is super important. It kind of points to some systemic issues like this one little nugget. I mean, kind of back to what Tim was saying, I, you know, my time at Woodward was really impactful to me. Mm -hmm. I think I learned probably more from the fourth grader I was with for, for four years than she did from me. Um, and I also did a lot of after school programs in Chicago public schools. And those were incredible experiences. I, it is a lot of work and targeted energy and resources that are needed at particularly the elementary, middle school, high school ages. Um, and it just seemed so much more impactful to start earlier. And, you know, in studying people like, like Jeffrey Canada and, and learning how you have to kind of back up and seeing how those kids at three and four, I mean, even before that, were able to learn and adjust and how quickly mm -hmm. um, things could be taught, learned, um, and how much it was then compounding on itself at an early age. Mm -hmm. I just, it, it, it makes so much sense. And if you are ever in a preschool classroom and you see how hard those educators work and how they're able to set up those experiences for children, I don't think you can ever look at it the same way. Mm -hmm. um, so that for me, it was just, that was it. That's all it took. You know? right. And there's no reason that some kids should have that opportunity and others shouldn't. Mm -hmm. yeah. I live right next to the Woodward School. So that's, I'm just, it's just interesting, like thinking about wanting to send my son there. There's also other options, also a mile away, but I live right across the street. Mm -hmm. And I remember, oh, there was like a speaker from the Community Foundation a few years ago. I can't remember the person's name. They were just like, if, if you live in a majority, you know, black school district, then you need to send your kid there like that. That's the work instead of sending them out somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it was powerful. It's always been stuck in my mind. Yeah. Well, I always told people when I was on the school board, I, I never, if a parent sends their kid to a school or say Kalamazoo Public Schools and for whatever reason they have a bad experience and, you know, they try to work it out, doesn't work out, and they decide to move their kid to some other option, I would never blame a parent for doing that. Where I sometimes can get critical people, you should at least try it out. 
or at least yeah. uh, visit the place. So, so sometimes people have stereotypes about they look at a classroom and depending on what it looks like to them, they decide, well, this must not be good. And I think people should uh, actually uh, observe things and see what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And you know, react to reality. Don't react to your stereotypes of what you think reality is. And the same would be true of preschool. If you want to really, I mean, actually, you might be at a good advice. If you want to evaluate whether a preschool is good, probably you should visit it, <laughs> hang out there a while, see what's going on, see how the teacher is right. interacting with the kids, see what the kids seem to be doing, and maybe talk to the teacher afterwards or the director afterwards about what the school's philosophy is and how they're trying to do it. I, you know, obviously maybe not everyone has the time to do that. You can't get off of work or whatever. But ideally, parents would actually rely on their experience rather than relying on stereotypes about whether a, a given mix of kids is good and bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think talking to the principal, I remember during COVID especially, when we were all home, the principal was at the school a lot, like working and doing different things. And I had some conversations with him and that was really helpful just to hear that school particular has like an immense amount of supports. And it's really neat to see some a principal there that's been there for so long and really, really dedicated. So, And the, and the beauty of where they sit, right? Mm-hmm. And it was for, for students like me at K too. You know, there's incredible resources and connections that can happen in the community right there because they are so close to right. university and a lot of other resources. Mm-hmm. Even like bringing it back around to economic development around that school, it's, I mean, on North Street, it's all, it all burnt down. And the houses on the other side of those houses are vacant. Mm-hmm. So thinking about what that community investment looks like and what those kids see every day. You know, it's so common in other cities and schools, too. You walk around the school, it's there's vacant buildings and blight and everything. And, you know, we have to do better. It's all connected, like at a hospital. You know, hospitals are starting to invest in the community and the neighborhoods around them. Well, I think kids are very – I mean, I think preschool and child care are very important. But mm-hmm. uh, I think the research that various people have done, like Graz Chetty at Harvard and, and uh, some others – uh, suggest that uh, kids are extremely sensitive to neighborhood environment. Uh, so if a neighborhood is really run down as a high crime area, this puts a lot of stress, especially on kids, because kids, it, it kind of freaks them out, mm-hmm. I mean, which, which is understandable. Mm-hmm. And high stress is not good for brain development. Mm-hmm. Right. For, for youth or adults. Well, for youth, they're adults, but of yeah. course the youth have more of the brain to develop. So, you know, so it, it's a higher risk. Hopefully your brain is developed by the time you're adult, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's that stress piece, the toxic stress yep. and, and the, you know, some invisible elements that that have concrete consequences is, yeah, it's, that's totally real. And preschool can help provide, you know, in some neighborhoods especially, can maybe provide an environment that's safe, a teacher who's uh, supportive, and a social environment where kids are interacting in a positive way. So it can relieve a lot of that stress. It can give kids a way to work things out, maybe. And it, it, it really makes a huge difference to child development. I mean, it, uh, you know, 
it, we've learned that basically kids are learning from birth on and, uh, and that obviously we need parents to be the primary teachers and to do a lot. I mean, no one's saying that parents don't have an extremely strong role in high-quality preschool programs. I mean, part of what they model, when Casey Ready Force work with preschool programs, part of what they're encouraging is getting parents involved. But um, especially once a kid turns one or two or so, they also need that social environment away from their parents because part of their life is going to be <laughs> they need to figure out how to deal with people who aren't in their family. Right, right, certainly, and and life on their own. Uh, I got four kids uh, myself, so ideally I would want them out the house. <laughs> and and they would they I would certainly want them to know how to navigate the world outside uh, our four family walls because um, it it can be uh, very different and so yeah having that skill set um, having that nurturing environment uh, totally important applicable and like you had mentioned before like the spillover effects mm-hmm. um, I think that's something that's not discussed enough. Um, but, but so critically important, like we, we focused on, you know, Casey Ready For Us is focused on its thing, but again, the spillover effects for society, um, it just, is it's just invaluable. Mm-hmm. I had one more last question. That's a little bit different from what we were talking about. I'm curious about the role of private economic development orgs, um, and like what you think their role is, uh, is here like similar to Southwest Michigan first, but we could just make it general. And well, there are a lot of organizations like that. Now, typically um, (laughs) a big part of economic development does rely on different public funding, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, either for the tax incentives or for the services. So, um, you know, these are, I guess they're private, but they're quasi public. Mm-hmm. and that they use public resources, and therefore I think that there is some role for public accountability for the results. So, you know, there may be reasons why you want a more nimble structure than you could maybe do through a government agency, but you also need to have some public accountability in these economic development agencies. And the Michigan Economic Development Corporation is a quasi-public-private thing. It's, it's part of the government. At the same time, I think it's outside of the civil service system. Um, I think you need to make sure you have the public accountability and the public always needs to ask questions about um, what are the costs of these programs and how does it compare with the benefits. And uh, uh, there have been many cases uh, like Foxconn in Wisconsin where uh, uh, state governments have done some really dumb things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a part of it is is that um, governors are attracted by the idea of getting big uh, headlines by landing the big fish, and it's so much the better if they can do it by promising their successors tax revenues 15 years from now. It's very attractive to a governor. You think about it. I mean, I can, I can give away my the next governor's tax revenues, and I can get the headlines and political credit today. And I think the public needs to demand that uh, there should be some accountability for that and some budget constraint on it. 
Do you feel that we have that accountability right now? Not enough. I mean, yeah. we need to have more of it. I mean, it's really an economic development topic. We need to regulate more. I mean, Europe regulates this a lot more. It puts limits on it. In Europe, most of what we do in economic development subsidies would be illegal because it's excessive. They limit the amount of subsidies. And again, I think we need to have more economic development programs that are services like job training program, customized job training programs for companies, which we do have in Michigan. We have some good customized job training programs. Uh, and then again, we also need to make sure we link people up with the jobs. So I think one of the, the holy grail of uh, uh, prosperity has been how do we link economic development with workforce development? We have these two silos that operate in different funding streams and have different clientele. The economic developers perceive their clientele as being firms. The workforce developers perceive their clientele as being um, workers or prospective workers. And you need, but to, to make a labor market work, you need to link the two. And part of it, of course, has to do with childcare and preschool. In other words, ideally, we would have a whole system of childcare and preschool so that workers in the neighborhoods can get the job. And we need to somehow link these systems to get rid of these silos. That's, I think, one of the real challenges. Well, everyone, I'm sure, you know, working with the city, I mean, the city only controls certain aspects of the picture, infrastructure and some of the water and sewer and stuff, but then the schools operate separately, the job training system operates separately, the preschool system <laughs> operates separately, the childcare system, the hospitals. You need to bring in together all these groups and need to be able to mobilize the labor supply and you need to make sure, I mean, you know, as I said, right now, one of the challenges our economy faces, look, there's a lot of demand in the economy right now. And employers can't get workers. Why can't they get workers? Well, there are a lot of reasons. One reason is um, child care centers and preschools are having trouble expanding because they they're having trouble finding and retaining workers. And so one thing now, if you want to kind of unleash the private economy and do economic development, is economic developers should be considering funding preschool and child care, or at least funding efforts to attract workers to preschool and child care, because that would have multiplier effects, not a Keynesian multiplier, but kind of a supply side multiplier on the rest of the economy, because once the child care center is staffed up and the preschool center is staffed up and could hire additional workers, then there are additional slots, and then you'll be able to attract workers to your place. So if right now, you know, maybe people should take some of the money that they're devoting to various tax incentives and devote it instead to subsidizing uh, child care and preschool teachers to, to, fill up, to open up new classrooms. Let's do it, Kevin. Let's, let's work on it. Um, so an article um, that Tim wrote, I think with the CEO of, of CalSEC, will be in the show notes, and we'll put that up there. It highlights some of what he just said. Um, we closing out on the show and we like to end on lighter notes. I know a lot of what we, we begin talking about is heavy stuff, complex, um, dynamic stuff, but we like to end on a little lighter note. Um, and it's been sprinkled throughout, but one of the things is like a one, two punch in terms of one short term thing folks can do to help move this uh, forward. Um, and then two, um, you know, a medium term, long term thing that, that folks could do in the community in terms of helping um, 
move this issue forward. So what's one short-term thing that from you all's perspective that folks could do to help um, bring this um, to the fore, elevate the conversation, uh, help folks in terms of child care? Well, I mean, I think a short-term thing that I also would say is a medium-term thing, I, your guess is as good as mine what's going to happen with this big budget reconciliation bill. Uh, apparently, they're going to pass some infrastructure bill, and then they're going to consider this big budget bill. That budget bill, um, at least some versions of it, would fund, would provide grants to states to do universal preschool at ages three and four in the United States. That's big. Yeah. Second, at least some versions of the bill would have, would make the refundable child tax credit, child credit, that was temporarily funded already. So people are getting this, um, I forget the exact amount per month, $350, dollars $300. $300 a month. I think it's, I think it's a little higher for young kids. I don't remember the exact amount, but that, um, is really important so that people can afford things like childcare. And the, some version of the reconciliation bill would include a permanent funding of that or at least longer-term funding. So I think if we could get that through, I would see that as a, as a short-term and medium-term thing. I mean, I, I'm not sure it will get through. So I think it still should be a goal. We can't get through this year. Maybe we can do it in a year or two, maybe a year or two from now. And the long-term thing, as I said, in my, my view, we need to have a system from birth to age five where we say, look, we really want to be pro-family in this country. And let's support families. Let's have parental leave, you know, for younger, for infants below age one. Let's have paid parent leave. And then beyond there, let's have a system where, yeah, parents pay something for childcare and preschool, but it's made affordable. And then there's some type of public subsidy, maybe partly through employers, partly through the government. And, um, uh, we do that, and other countries have done this. It's not cheap. I should mention that it's not cheap, but and right. that's why I think that's a long-term goal. You'd have to really get people to wrap their heads around the cost of quality and universality. Mm -hmm. So let me stop there. Kristen, I, the only thing I would add to that is just people need to keep this issue of childcare and and quality on their radar. It can't be just you know, the mothers who are trying to navigate and deal with the system. We need community leaders talking about it. We need business leaders. We need legislative folks, everyone to be aware of and cognizant of and talking about the importance of this issue. Because if we don't have the childcare, if we don't have quality options, if we have no early educators, and we're continuing to close classrooms and continuing to limit hours because we can't find teaching staff, this is going to be a community problem. And so when we're thinking of additional resources, when we're thinking of what else do we need to do to support um, economic development and, and everything else, this has to be talked about by those leading the communities instead of you know, just, just the, the parents who are navigating the issues. Right, right. Good stuff. Um, each one of you, a six-word vision for our community. Uh, I'll model it. A community without poverty and racism. Six words. Yeah. <laughs> You're an economist. You could be economic with this. 
Oh, really? Okay, that's not that's not what Tim Burdick's noted for uh, in terms of being uh, being concise. Uh, let's see. Um, we're all in this together. Is that six words? Where? We are all in this together. There you go. If you okay. say we are instead of where, like the past. We are all in this together. Yeah, see, <laughs> that's the model of the economy we need. A lot of times we think about the economy as just being competitive, but uh, and it is competitive, but it's also the case that we all have a stake in, uh, in the productivity and uh, not just the happiness, but the productivity and skills of our brothers and sisters there and our go. sons and daughters and of our friends' sons and daughters. There you go. Or, or even in our community's sons and daughters, for that matter. Six-word vision. For Kalamazoo, it would be leading early childhood education innovation. Okay. Is that six? I don't know, but it, it sounds, sounds all right. That's as short as I can get. There you go. <laughs> it sounds Big all right. vision. Few words. Cool. Cool. I think mine, I've been working on mine since we started. I got four words, and today I did the last two. So I've got show up, listen, and everyone thrives. There you go. It's I'm still I'm still drafting it though. It's a work in progress. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have it. <laughs> okay. What are, what are questions? What's um? Uh, what are you currently reading? Yeah. You can't give like a textbook. Like it's a fun. What do you? What's your fun <laughs> read you're reading right now? Well, you have to realize I'm I'm an economist, so I'm really, really. Uh, What's your fun economist read? There you go. What are you excited <laughs> about reading? I'm reading a book by Ed Glazer and David Cutler called "Survival of the City," which is about how the pandemics affect the future. Of the you know, what after COVID? What's the future of the city? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess I'm also planning to read it. I'm going on vacation Saturday. Uh, I I've never read Octavia Butler's. Uh, Parable of the Sower, Parable of the Talent, so I'm planning to read that. Okay. All right. Krista? Yeah, you're putting me on the spot. <laughs> I just finished a book. I think it was called Small Great Things. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you read it? Mm-mm. It's excellent. Um, and I'll confirm the title before you put it in the show notes, but um, a great book navigating. Well, I'm not going to give it away, but I, I would definitely recommend it. All right. What did you have for dinner last night, Tim? Uh, we had fish. Fish? What kind of fish? Uh, it was some fish that uh, my wife picked up at Costco that was some easy thing. So, okay, one of the things that's happened over time is, like, both my wife and I are sick of making dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so it's like occasionally we, we do it. But so we either go out or, or we try to figure out some really easy meals we get from somewhere. Yeah. Doug, Doug and I say 90% of marriage is figuring out what's for dinner. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's my like, question. At some point, day. how much do you want to make? Yeah. yeah. We're yes. both sick of it. So Okay. What do you have? Um, both of my children are September babies. And when it's your birthday, you get to pick the meal. So we are still eating the meal um, uh, from one of my kids. But my husband makes homemade tomato sauce. So we had pasta with the homemade tomato sauce and mm. broccoli, which is one of is my daughter's vegetable of choice. There you go. <laughs> your daughter likes broccoli? Classic. And my, my son likes kale. Wow. Okay. Well, there's something uh, that yeah. that's very that's so unusual. <laughs> they're going. They're going. Probably due the to probably due to high quality preschool or something. Like that. 
There you go. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, another question would be cake or pie. We'll go first with you, Kristen. I'd say cake. Oh, pie. It's got it, but yeah, pie, like some uh, warm apple pie with uh, some kind of uh, vanilla bean ice cream, vanilla ice cream. On. Oh, yeah, a la mode. That'd be good. That's the way to go. All right. Or cherry pie. This is Michigan. I guess you really into this cherry pie. I like cherry, <laughs> I like, I like cherry pie with tart, relatively, yeah, tart cherries. What is on your nightstand right now? My books. Books? Yeah. Tons of books. All I mean, the books I, that I'm... Yeah, what happens is I tend to often have, like, I have different books that I'm reading, and I, I'm usually reading two or three books at the same yeah. time, and so I'll go back and forth between them. Okay. Yeah. Great plan. That's what I usually do, too. What is the most... This is the final question. What is the most important thing you do to take care of yourself and show up to your work every day? Like a little daily thing. You can go first, Tim. Um, I would say doing some physical exercise, including uh, walking. So I frequently walk to work, or I try to walk at least two or three miles a day. I actually read a, a talking about books, a really good book about this called The Extended Mind by Annie, uh, by a, a science journalist. That's all about how your 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 a body, not just a mind. And thinking requires. Uh, it's actually amazing how much you can improve your thinking if if you're stuck on something, you go for a walk. Um, or actually, if I'm really stuck on something, I'll think about it before I go to sleep, and then my brain processes it overnight. And in the morning, I have a new idea. I've also heard the saying: "Change your breathing, change your breath, change your mind." Just from doing some yoga. Yeah, but I would say teaching. walking. I mean, walking. I think thinking is uh, is improved by walking, mm-hmm. and it's also good. Not just it's also good for your body, but it, but yeah. I think it also actually improves your thinking. And it actually, there are a lot of studies showing that physical exercise, including walking, improves mood. Oh yeah, yeah, that's definitely true for me. I I work out in the mornings, mm-hmm. so six a.m. CrossFit, and nice. I do that three times a week. And I'm I can attest I'm nicer. On Monday, Wednesday, Friday, when I do this. <laughs> okay. I got to get back in the CrossFit. I tried it last year for like three months, and I've been it's brutal. I got to get back it's into brutal. it. I got to get back into walking. Yeah. Yeah. Think walks. Yeah. Walking meetings. There you go. I'm trying. I've been wanting to do that. I've been trying to figure out how to write because something. Sometimes you you know you taking notes. Walking and taking notes. I need can to dictate. Okay. I need to figure that out because walking meetings is definitely, yeah, that can be a thing. It should be a thing. Yeah. Historically, uh, Aristotle's school of philosophy, they were called the peripatetic school, which means the walking around school because Aristotle liked to walk around with his students talking. They didn't, they didn't do anything just sitting down. They walked around and talked about philosophy. So walking around is a good way to, and we're not walking around now, but you know, no. we, we, maybe the conversation, we would have been more thoughtful if we had walked around while that's we were doing the, this. Yeah, thing. that's the next level of the uh, Share Prosperity podcast, a walking podcast. It's probably the first in history, too. Yep, yep. <laughs> walking podcast. So only in Kalamazoo. Only. And we learned something. Every episode, we had guests, we learned something. So uh, what was the name of the school? What? Peripatetic school from Aristotle. Walking around Peripatetic. school. Peripatetic. <laughs> Peripatetic. There you go. A walking school, but walking meetings. Yeah, that's what's up. I want to thank you all 
Tim Bartik, Kristen Lepisto, um, Melody, as always. Uh, thank you all for your time, your knowledge, wisdom. Um, yeah, this is such a critical issue um, for right now, but for future as well. Um, and I uh, want to thank you all. Thanks for having us. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah. Yeah, no thank doubt. You. And so this has been episode six of Share Prosperity Podcast. Um, thank you all for listening. And we'll see you next time. Yeah.